just to hand out my uh, Amish PowerPoint there. Thank you. So I'll use most of these quotes over the course of my talk. There are 15. I'll use not all, but most of them. And I've numbered them so you can follow along easily with me. Um, let me just thank Pat again. This has been more than worth the jet lag, but with that in mind, I'll just ask you to save all the difficult questions for our next speaker. That's all right. Um, but no, thank you sincerely for this invite, and it's been a real pleasure to get to meet all of you. So I'm just going to jump right in. Um, the debate over the value and the validity of applying neuroscience to the study of literature has been raging for several years now practitioners of the still relatively new field of neurolit crit, um, as many of you know, are using MRIs to study our brains on Dunn, our brains on Austin. And they're also making lots of very um, positivistic truth claims about what is really going on when we enjoy the writers we enjoy. We've already had some nice conversations about that over lunch. Now, the critics of these neurolit critters, uh, as I like to call them, the most compelling being Dr. Tallis, thank you, uh, have argued that these gimmicky new fields amount to the most reductive form of the worldview he's helpfully dubbed for us, neuromania. Unfortunately, neuromania seems to be contagious and spreading to authors, too. Um, based on the number of neuro-minded novels that have been produced just over the last 20 years, uh, this trend led one critic, a guy named Marco Roth, to coin the term neuronovel to describe these back in 2009. And under this label, Roth identified a common set of plot lines and narrational strategies that are employed in these neurally inflected novels um, by writers like Ian McEwan, Richard Powers, Mark Haddon, Rivka Galchin, um, many, many others, and the two Jonathans that are going to be the subject of my talk today, Jonathan Latham and Jonathan Franzen. Now, neuronovels typically feature protagonists who are either practicing neuroscientists themselves or who are suffering from some very rare neurological disorder. I'll go into a lot of those uh, later on. And to varying degrees, and this is probably the more interesting part of it, these neuronovelists are relying on the idioms of brain chemistry instead of classical psychology uh, to render the behaviors and motivations of their character meaningful to readers. Now, what I want to do today uh, mainly is focus our attention on what I think are the two most philosophically interesting examples of this relatively new genre. That's Latham's 1999 novel, Motherless Brooklyn, and Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections from 2001. And if, um, it's just always helpful for me to know have any of, uh, how many of these you've read, if any. Uh, okay, so I'll, I'll explain. I'll give you the gist of the plot, too, to give it a little more context. 
Now, I think these two books really show us what we can expect to happen in the future of fiction if and when the spiritual or psychological categories that have traditionally been used to give depth to fictional characters, things like soul, mind, will, conscience, etc., get replaced with their strictly physiological correlates, um, genes, nerves, blood, etc. And I'm going to use these two novels to address a couple of questions that I think, I hope, I should say, will be of broader philosophical interest for this audience. The first question I'm hoping we can address together during the Q&A part is whether or not the novel, and I mean this with a capital N, the novel as a genre, um, is not fundamentally phenomenological in its orientation and its methods. At least since Flaubert, um, I know I'm doing broad brushstrokes here, so I'm going a little bit out on a ledge, but I think at least since Flaubert, it is fair to claim that the novel has committed itself to clarifying the structures of our average, everyday coping with the world, embodied coping. It has also attempted to concretely describe our lived daily experience, and always with an um, equally phenomenological attention to live time as opposed to so-called clock time, right? Now, my second question related to this, then, is whether or not this new genre of the neuro novel is almost a contradiction in terms, um, whether it's almost an impossible, fruitless project. For what would it even mean to narrate our bodies, our minds, our emotions, um, our day-to-day -day existence in neural terms? Since we cannot, and I'll say much more about this at the end, but since we cannot have a direct experience of our own brain chemistry at work. And this raises a final, even more prescriptive question uh, for me in all this. Just how much, and this is very much inspired by Dr. Tallis, this part of it, just how much do we even want our novelists to be um, committed to the notion that we are our brains in the most reductive sense? Um, are we prepared, as Marco Roth puts it, for serious fiction writers to, this is his words, to cede their ground to science in the same way as so many of the other collaborators, to borrow another term from Dr. Tallis that I think is very helpful, um, are doing across the, other, uh, the humanities in various other prefixed fields these days? Or is the novel not one of the most important battlegrounds, um, places where we should be using phenomenology to enrich our lived experience? Um, and felt experience of who we are and how we are in the world. And by the same token, I think where better than in novels to resist this deeply limited idea that our identities are reducible to our brain chemistry. So let me jump right in with Jonathan Latham. For those of you, uh, it sounds like everybody, who haven't read Motherless Book Brooklyn before, it's a first-person detective story, and the twist is that this young man, uh, the, the detective in the novel, Lionel Esrog, suffers from the acute verbal and physical tics of Tourette's syndrome. So just to give you the quickest sense of what it's like to read this book, imagine Oliver Sacks crossed with Raymond Chandler, and you get the idea. Um, and I do recommend it. It's a fun read. It's not a great detective novel, but the clinical element of it really does make it a fascinating book. Uh, now, the progression of Tourette's syndrome in Lionel's case follows a fairly typical pattern with the onset of motor tics preceding verbal ones by a period of several years. Ironically, Lionel's earliest memory, I think this is a very nice choice, his earliest memory of ticking involves a visit to the Natural History Museum in Manhattan. 
where the character climbs into one of those dioramas and begins to compulsively caress all of the penguins in this display. And he says, once I touched the first penguin, I had no choice. I'm sure we've all been there. Now, in his role as autopathographer, Lionel explains how the tickish urge to go around touching things drastically increased for him around age 12. And here I'll start to refer you to the handout. This is quote one. I had begun to overflow with reaching, tapping, grabbing, and kissing urges. Those compulsions emerged first, while language for me was still trapped like a roiling ocean under a calm flow of ice. Now by 13, Lionel's teoretic energy starts to be channeled into various other outlets, and he develops what he describes, this is quote two, as a proneness to floor tapping, whistling, tongue clicking, winking, rapid head turns and wall stroking, anything but the direct utterances for which my particular Tourette's brain most yearned. Um, did you get a handout? Yeah. yeah. Um, now the theme of deterministic surrender to one's symptoms that runs through these two moments is one of the key staples of the neuronovel genre. How unconditional that surrender ends up being kind of, um, seems to vary um, from writer to writer and from condition to condition but there's always going to be some degree of neural determinism present in any neurofiction. Often this will come across um, through the writer's minute attention, sounds a little bit like nose guard, minute attention to physical tics, um, uh, involuntary physical behaviors, tremors, spasms, shakes. Uh, I want to note that I'm calling these involuntary rather than unconscious, and I think that's important. A uh, very important distinction, just to underscore again the way neuro uh, novels privilege the agency of the brain over the psyche or the will, right? And by way of counterpoint, I'll just suggest imagining these two passages I wrote, imagining how a much more Freudian writer, like the recently passed Philip Roth, would have rendered these same scenes, right? What kind of libidinal or edible urges would he use to give meaning? to a young boy who needs to go around caressing everything or in his environment, right? And that'll give you just a basic sense of this new orientation of the neuro novel compared to the um, more Freudianly oriented novel of the late uh, 20th century. Bless you. To reinforce this neural view of the self even more strongly, uh, Lifeham also implies the device of personification throughout Motherless Brooklyn to the point that Lionel's brain almost becomes another character in the book, uh, able to think and act and speak independently from Lionel's own skull, from within it. And this gets repe uh, explained repeatedly in terms of a double brain or my two disgruntled brains. These two halves of Lionel's split self are said to function simultaneously almost on two different tracks. For example, this is uh, quote three, this is a doozy. While I thought about these things, another track in my brain intoned brainioctomy, brainy alimony, bunny monopoly, bailey octopus, brainy animal, brachypotamus. What's going on here, I think, is analogous um, to what John Ruskin called the pathetic fallacy, where writers ascribe a human agency or outlook to things in nature. This just came up between sessions, right? Latham's, what, I would like, what I'd like to call Latham's neural fallacy, if you will, comes in the personified formula that recurs constantly through this book. My brain went X, and he fills the X in with lots of different things. I just gave you one example, number four. My brain went follow that car, Hollywood star, when you wish upon a cigar. 
Um, the novel is absolutely full of these neural refrains where, uh, note the italics here, where the italics are used to reinforce the autonomy of the Tourettic self and to stress its utter separation from Lionel. Um, the cumulative effect of all this is that Lionel seems more like some alienated bystander um, to whatever his brain is doing at any given time. In other words, rather than him being some Cartesian thinking thing who thinks with his brain, with his brain, he's um, much more like an estranged eavesdropper on his own Tourette stream of consciousness. Now, as extreme as this experience might sound, uh, Lionel's symptoms actually make him a fairly typical case for Tourette's. Although he's quick to remind us that one of the defining features, ironically, of Tourette's syndrome is its incredibly strong resistance to general definitions. Uh, much more so than with other symptoms, the exact combination of Tourette's behaviors is always unique to each Tourette's self. And this is because, as people like Oliver Sacks have pointed out very eloquently, while the urge to respond to one's environment may be forced, the form that that response takes normally is not. Um, and I won't read out uh, Sachs' quote, but it's there on the handout if you're interested, number five. But he really stresses this idea of um, the mixture of voluntary and involuntariness in Tourette's syndrome that for him is key to understanding and also to um, finding a, the positive in it. I mean, he looks at it in pretty rosy colored glasses, if you will. Now, unfortunately, this, for Lionel, this insight that his tics are a personalized response to his environment provides a little more than cold comfort, and he tends to feel that his tics, rather than making him, as he puts it at one point, unique as a snowflake, um, they only really individualize the disease itself. In other words, all his symptoms end up doing for him is making him feel like he has a more distinct brain than his personality. I think this point, in particular, raises a very interesting key question about the genre of the neuronovel as a whole. And that question, uh, I think this goes back to a point Dr. Tallis made earlier, that question is exactly how universalizable these kinds of brain stories are or are meant to be. Um, already in 2009, Marco Roth noted this as a problem for most of the neuronovels he covered in his essays. What those works had in common for him were two things. First, a lamentably unconditional surrender to neuroscience as the new master narrative that was meant to describe, explain uh, virtually all of our everyday behavior. And then second, and paradoxically for Roth, based on the first, um, a tendency of these writers to focus only on extremely rare neurological conditions. Um, besides Tourette's syndrome, he cites portrayals of conditions like facial agnosia, Huntington's disease, erotomania, Capgrass syndrome, and paranoid schizophrenia. Now the problem this paradox creates is mostly a hermeneutic one. How are we supposed to interpret these stories? They frustrate our most basic expectation as readers of realist fiction to be able to generalize some kind of lesson from the story that we're reading. Uh, quote seven is relevant here. Uh, this is Roth. We want to be able to generalize or approximate or metaphorize this rare neurological condition into some kind of experience compatible with our own. Uh, but the neuronovel also baffles and frustrates that impulse. By turning so aggressively inward to an almost cellular level, this kind of novel bypasses the self, let alone society or history, 
to arrive at neurology, or what he calls privacy without individuality. Well, that leads me to Jonathan Franzen. Um, in his essay on the Nora novel, Marco Roth makes no mention of him or the corrections, but there are two other critics more recently, uh, Francisco Ortega and Fernando Vidal. They do include Franzen. I, I find it a little bit of a strange choice for reasons I'll explain in a moment. But they do include Franzen in their list of noronovelists in a co-authored essay from 2013 called Brains in Literature. Uh, for any of you, most of you it sounds like, who haven't read the corrections, it's a messy, long chronicle, a little bit nose guardian in that sense, of a Midwestern family named the Lamberts, Enid and Albert, the father, uh, and their three children, Chip, Denise, and Gary. I will focus mostly on Gary in a moment. And each of the Lamberts, along with just about every minor character, too, exists under the weight of several interrelated social pressures. Uh, consumerism, biotech venture capitalism, the traditional Midwestern values that they grow up under, and also especially various forms of self-help, again, norally inflected pop psychology that seems to be doing them all much more harm than good in the book. Last but not least, the Lamberts all live under the unique pressures of an American medical system um, that in this novel make them feel less and less entitled to understanding their unhappiness, their depression, be, I hope some interesting links to your talk, um, in anything other than neurochemical terms. It becomes almost a kind of mandatory requirement in the novel that they neuralize their own experience, especially of unhappiness. Safe to say, then, again this speaks to why I think it's a strange choice to speak of Franzen as um, a neuronovelist, but safe to say if he is one, he's reluctantly so. And if the corrections qualifies as neurofiction, I think it's more so in terms of its tropes and its themes than its attitude towards this general march towards the neurologization of everyday life that we're all undergoing. Whereas Latham, in his book, My Littlest Brooklyn, does largely embrace this neural version of personhood, Franzen resists it and satirizes it at every single turn. And to show how he does this, I'm going to focus just on part three of the novel, uh, which is titled, The More He Thought About It, The Angrier He Got. <laughs> Genius title. The he in the title is Gary, Gary Lambert, the younger son, who is a fairly successful investment banker. And over the course of this long chapter, he suffers a complete mental breakdown, at the end of which he finally declares himself clinically, by which in his case he means norally depressed. When the chapter opens, and I think um, many of you are going to love this quote, number eight. When the chapter opens, Gary is developing, you can see the symbolism here right away, he's developing some family photographs in the family darkroom. Go back to those environmental and color factors, right? The symbolism there is pretty clear. And right away we find him playing this Russian roulette game of self-diagnosis. Quote eight. To the extent that Gary was able to understand and track, I'm sorry it's long, but it's worth it. Um, to the extent that Gary was able to understand and track his neurochemistry, and he was a vice president at SenTrust Bank, not a shrink, let's remember, his leading indicators all seem rather healthy. Although in general Gary applauded the modern trend towards self-management of retirement funds, he was less than thrilled to be given responsibility for his own personal brain chemistry. 
But Gary was nothing, if not conscientious. As he entered the dark room, he estimated that his levels of norofactor 3, i.e. serotonin, a very, very important factor, were posting 7-day or even 30-day highs, that his factor 2 and factor 7 levels were likewise outperforming expectations, and that his factor 1 had rebounded from an early morning slump related to the glass of Armagnac he'd drunk at bedtime. Now, what Franzen's up to here, I think, is fairly straightforward. He's taking this reductionist version of neuroscience and he's squeezing it down to a reductio ad absurdum of itself. Um, by flooding his book with the technical terminology um, as well as the more popularized buzzwords of neuroscientific self-help, Franzen's trying to expose what I think he sees as a giant metaphorical abyss above which all of these discourses ultimately rest. In this respect, um, above all, Franzen reminds me of Thomas Mann, especially his masterpiece, Magic Mountain. Uh, and I'm not the first to make that comparison. Both Mann and Franzen share the same humanistic disdain for scientific positivism, the same suspicion towards medical dogmas. Both, also, both authors, I think, also approach uh, medical knowledge less as some set of absolute truths and more so as a set of what George Lakoff calls metaphors we live by. Now, we can see this in the long quote, I think, quite easily uh, that I just read out in the way that Gary mixes the metaphorical language of investment banking with the neural metaphors of mental health. And in fact, the one phrase, um, his brain is posting seven-day highs, actually mixes three sets of metaphors, right? Uh, neurological, financial, and meteorological. And earlier in that same section, I didn't want to quote the whole thing because it's quite long, but early in that section, the narrator even refers to this explicitly as the weather in Gary's brain. Yeah. Over the course of this chapter, Gary gets besieged uh, really from all sides with various warning signs. Um, and that's usually put in bold in quotes uh, throughout the chapter, warning signs. They have this very official ring to them. Um, there's the hereditary factor of his father's own depression. There are these constant suggestions from self-help books that sit not on his nightstand, but on his wife's, uh, just across the bed, but the titles seem to stare at him, um, almost as like ominous messages or warnings of, of his pending fate. Um, and he becomes also, therefore, increasingly paranoid that his entire family, wife, and children are all diagnosing him um, amateurishly behind his back. Um, now, during an argument with his wife where this all comes out, these metaphors that he's living by also turn military. This is quote nine. Uh, Gary here is going to resent the way she's able to deploy this language of depression against him. Uh, how accurate his intuition that a putative deficit of norofactor three would sap the legitimacy of his moral arguments. <laughs> I know. Uh, Caroline was now able to camouflage her animosity towards him as concern about his health. His lumbering forces of conventional domestic warfare were no match for this biological weaponry. He cruelly attacked her person. She heroically attacked his disease. All of this bickering and paranoia that builds throughout this section of the book eventually culminates in this equally military uh, climax where Gary decides that his neurochemical defenses are just no match for his wife. And while they're deciding on the family Christmas plans, he explicitly gives up. 
I'm extremely depressed, Gary tells his wife. I surrender. And I'm pretty sure it's been a while since I looked at the scene, but I think that's the very end of, the, of this whole section. I surrender. Now, what, uh, what I think it's important to note here is what he's actually surrendering to. Um, it's not so much a specific diagnosis of clinical depression as it is a specific account of the self with all of these neurally determined states of being that we increasingly live under, these metaphors we live by. So what's revealed to us and to Gary, in other words, isn't his neurological makeup per se, but rather the very neural frame of reference through which he's forced to filter all of his lived experience. <coughs> now, I'd love to belabor this point with many more examples. They're all equally funny, but trust me, there are scores of similar moments in the corrections where a character ends up socially pressured to translate their personal situation, again, often um, depression specifically, into neurochemical terms. But unlike almost all other neuronovelists, this is what I love about Franzen, he does this in a way that reminds us just how much these neurodiscourses are starting to come to structure our everyday lives. Um, but without, this is the key, I think, without ever ceding to neuroscience some ultimate say over who or what we really are. And I think that's what also allows him to raise a more pr pragmatically ethical question. He's a very ethical writer. He's definitely a moralist in the Balzacian tradition. And I think the question he's posing to us is simply whether these brain stories we're telling ourselves are ultimately good for us or not. Uh, neural accounts of things like human happiness are powerful, possibly therapeutic, but also highly dangerous and demeaning at times, to be blunt. Moreover, the way these metaphors get mixed with other discourses, and here I'm, again I'm taking my cue from George Lakoff, this is never merely poetic or rhetorically neutral. To metaphorize your own mental health in terms of investment banking is something that comes with what Lakoff calls entailment relationships. It entails that you'll think of yourself as a tradable commodity. And it also entails that it'll get harder and harder for you to think of yourself in anything, um, any other terms. Almost done. How am I on time? Perfect. All right, so to conclude, um, none of what I've been saying here is meant to dismiss the science of neurochemistry. I don't pretend to have the qualifications or the interest in doing that. Obviously, there are certain verifiable <coughs> facts of our biology. They are real and have real effects on us. There's my disclaimer. Um, but what they are is not apparent. We cannot have, as far as I can tell, Correct me if I'm wrong, but we cannot have a lived experience of our neurons firing in any direct phenomenological sense. Fair? Yeah. Um, nor can we have a lived experience of serotonin. Far as I could tell, that will never happen. Correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Tallis. Um, so telling us what our brains are up to, whether it's in a novel or in a doctor's consulting room, will always be an exercise in metaphor. Uh, in his book, The Absent Body, uh, which I highly recommend to all of you if you haven't read it based on our conversations all day, uh, the phenomenologist Drew Later makes a very similar point in the context of visual perception. This is quote 10. When gazing at a soda can, I not only see from my eyes per se, but from my retinal nerves, my visual cortex. While an experimental scientist might attend to these nerve firings, 
they are necessarily that of which I am unaware. Which again, I think speaks to uh, Ulrich's paper earlier today and the, the, the necessity that the body conceal itself for other experiences to even be made possible. Um, and this is also what I meant at the outset when I suggested that neurofiction might be nothing more than a dead end for literature. And I don't usually get this prescriptive, but I feel this very much about this genre. Um, it, I think it's a dead end because I don't see a way to effectively narrate anything like the lived experience of our neural selves. In their essay on the neuro novel, Ortega and Vidal see this new form of interdisciplinarity quite differently and much more optimistically, I think, than I do overall. This is quote 11. Um, speaking about the brain is mainly a trope with which to broach sociality and phenomenological experience, a way for making fiction in a context in which neuro discourses have emerged as a prominent way of understanding the human. So I think there's a little bit here of a Bakhtinian idea. Um, that this new form of fiction is just another example of what the novel has always done. Adapt, um, survive through adaptation, constantly rejuvenate itself by assimilating the new discourses of the day. Um, for Bakhtin, the novel is really what he calls a heteroglossic genre, and so it's able to assimilate various um, discourses from the journalistic to the scientific, whatever. And they seem to think that's really just another, this is just another example of um, the novel's strength, not, not a weakness. But my worry here is that all of this, again, might represent something much more close to surrender than to assimilation. Uh, because one of the lessons we're learning across contemporary culture, again, thanks in large part to Dr. Tallis's work on this, is how these uh, sorts of brain stories increasingly preclude other more personal forms, more experiential forms of storytelling. Now, Franzen makes this point himself, and I'm, I'm really glad I included this quote based on your talk earlier, Pat, so I think I will read it out. Uh, this is quote 12. Uh, he makes this same point very bluntly in a piece he wrote for the New Yorker titled My Father's Brain in which he spells out his uneasy ambivalence towards the diagnosis of his own father with Alzheimer's back in the 80s, I believe, or the early 90s. Um, here's the quote. And again, it's long, but you'll see it's worth it. I can see my reluctance to apply the term Alzheimer's to my father as a way of protecting the specificity of Earl Franzen from the generality of a nameable condition. Conditions have symptoms. Symptoms point to the organic basis of who we are. They point to the brain as meat. And where I ought to recognize that, yes, the brain is meat, I seem instead to maintain a blind spot across which I then interpolate stories that emphasize the more soul-like aspects of the self. Seeing my afflicted father as a set of organic symptoms would invite me to understand the healthy Earl Franzen and the healthy me in symptomatic terms as well to reduce our beloved personalities to finite sets of neurochemical coordinates. Who wants a story of life like that? Well, um, according to the New York Times bestseller list, increasingly it seems like we all do. Um, many of our, I might write one myself, and many of our most interesting contemporary writers I think really seem to be swimming with the neural tide on this one. Um, they're embracing what I think is just simply a, a, market, a highly marketable idea at the moment that they're seeing in the realm of nonfiction and bringing over, um, that each of us is ultimately and best explained in terms of our brains. 
Along with this comes the assumption that fiction, at least of the realist variety, has a duty, this is the strangest part, has a duty to conform to this new normal paradigm of the self, if it wants to continue to call itself realist. In this respect, I think Marco Roth may well be right when he insists that normal novels represent some ultimate seeding of authority from the humanities to the sciences. And if this hints at a direction where all fiction may be headed, we can imagine a time very soon where the kinds of neuroscientific discourses that Franzen satirized so well, really stunningly as early as 2001 when he wrote this, um, will become the unsatirized norm. Identity then gets narrated as a set of neurochemical coordinates. Desires and emotion become releases of specific neurotransmitters. Thoughts and memory become the haphazard firing of synapses back and forth. That may well be what's really going on, but again, who the hell wants a story of life like that? All right, thank you, I'm done.